This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Monday, January the 8th, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, Quebec's public sector unions have reached a tentative agreement with the government. Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press will give you an update on the strike. And there's been extensive research onto the effects of long COVID. Dr. Angela Chung discusses the state of that research and explores a couple of the treatment options for people experiencing symptoms of long COVID. And Usable Net has released its annual report on digital, digital, how about digital accessibility lawsuits in the United States. Denny Boudreau dives into some of the data. Happy that you could spend part of your Monday hanging out with the gang here at Now with Dave Brown. You may recall from Friday's episode that my hair was out of control going for the Albert Einstein look. I promised the bosses I would get a haircut this weekend, but I did not. I live my life in protest. So I just found Ramya Amuthan's hair gel this morning and gelled my hair down. Dave, why won't you just cut your hair? Why can't you be an adult and, you know, Kemp to yourself like a professional broadcaster. Well, because the Michigan Wolverines are playing in the American College Football National Championship game tonight, and uh, they have not lost since my last haircut. So why would I mess with happy going into a big night for me? Let's begin the show with the top story of the day. Canadian economists are weighing in on the state of the housing market. TD Bank economist Rishi Sandi says there has been weaker sales and price activity over the past few months, but there are indications that the market is starting to turn around. That's largely dependent on the Bank of Canada if they could begin cutting their key interest rate. Vancouver realtor Tim Hill has seen a shift in attitude from some of his clients expressing more optimism. There are some other important threads to pull at in conversations around the housing crisis because that's sort of top-level stuff. Interest rates and optimism, there are still a lot of people suffering. A man was was found dead in a tent encampment in Edmonton yesterday. The body was found just hours before the encampment was scheduled to be cleared by city officials and police. Police say the body was found when EMS were conducting wellness checks on residents following a propane tank explosion in the encampment. So that's Edmonton, Alberta. Then you go a little bit to the Atlantic provinces. A man has died after a large fire broke out at a tent encampment in St. John, New Brunswick over the weekend. Police received a report of an outdoor fire around 8 p.m. on Saturday. Emergency crews found the man suffering from serious burns. He was transferred out of province for treatment and died yesterday. So that's one of these things that I'll keep coming back to whenever you and I are talking about the economy or housing. You and I can explore 
ideas of, oh, recovery in the marketplace and house prices moderating and interest rates being cutting. But there's still a lot of people who are suffering acute issues related to the housing crisis. And it's the same thing when you talk about the job market or the GDP growth or the stock market. There are these macroeconomic indicators that show flatlining or some progress in the economy. But at the end of the day, the microeconomics matter and people matter. And that's something that you should never lose sight of and lose mind of when talking about these things. One more story for you, this one also from The Economy and Labour. Air Transat and the union representing its 2,100 flight attendants say they have reached a tentative labour agreement. The proposed contract comes after the flight attendants rejected an early agreement in December. The company says the proposed agreement is, if it's approved, will be in place for the next five years. Previous contract expired on October the 31st, 2022. A strike mandate has been in place since November of 2023. That's your look at the news. Let's get to the daily polls at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. I'll get to the X thing in a second. On Friday, you were asked, what type of product do you refuse to buy online? 20% of you said furniture, 30% of you said large electronics, 50% of you said expensive clothes, and this is unsurprising, 0% of you said I only shop in person. Of course, this question got bounced into social media a couple of times last week. Uh, too bad we lost one of the uh, previous comments that somebody chimed in with. Uh, nothing over 50 pounds. So that goes back to something that uh, I've shared with you before in my own personal experience. Uh, as someone who does not drive because I'm legally blind, uh, carrying heavy things home from the grocery store is unpleasant. That's why a lot of uh, canned goods and uh, liquid goods, I will bite the bullet and get uh, delivered to my place and pay some of those exorbitant fees to uh, do so. Today's Daily Poll. A little later in the show, you posed some Ask Me Anything questions to Ryan Van Praet, inclusive sport advocate. So it's all about fitness and nutrition and exercise going into the new year. So I want to know from you your preferred way to exercise. And that's the simple question at Accessible Media on X at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. What is your preferred way to exercise? Weightlifting, group classes, cardio machines, playing sports? And again, that poll is available at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook and on X at Accessible Media. I've officially dropped my protest. I've fought the good fight for over six months now to not uh, change the pronoun on Twitter. But in the end, just for the sake of simplicity, we will go with general vernacular and say X. All right, let's bring in Laura Bain and Alex Smythe on this one. Laura, your preferred way to work up a sweat. Uh, well, my preferred way of exercise, I would say, is getting my steps in, so yes. walking. I'm a big fan of walking, and I really enjoy it. And I had a friend recently say to me, oh, you should find a walking buddy. But the thing is, I I enjoy walking alone. Like, I like that time with my thoughts. Um, and, you know, that can include if I get an opportunity to go for a hike in the woods, that's fantastic. That would definitely be with a friend. But otherwise, just walking around my neighborhood. Now, it is a little bit more difficult this time of year, um, especially we got some snow here last night in Halifax. So I'm not really sure what those sidewalks are like. But a few times recently, I've sort of haven't felt like going, but I've forced myself. And once I'm out there, I feel good, you know, and, um, you know, tip is just to maybe stick to some of the main roads if you're nervous about what the sidewalks mm -hmm. are like, because at least here they tend to be uh, cleared more on the on the main roads. But 
you know, definitely stepping up my movement, like no, no pun intended, <laughs> is uh, something I really want to do this uh, year because I felt like I was just way too sedentary last year, partly due to school. And I'll just give a little shout out to one activity I did last winter that I might try to do again, which is I took an online ballet class Ooh. for blind adults. Um, so that was really fun and really cool. That was with dark room ballet and, um, it was totally accessible. You don't even need an internet connection. You can just join by your phone and listen. So, uh, I liked that it, it used different muscles than I'm used to using. And, um, I didn't really stick with it. I have to admit after the class ended, but, uh, it is something I might enroll in again. Laura, I have follow-up questions. Number one, I think anybody across the country can empathize with sidewalks, not being particularly great. There was some yeah. snow in Toronto over the weekend and the uh, neighborhood sidewalks in my neck of the woods are awful this morning, like covered in ice because the city of Toronto doesn't believe in snow removal. They just assume it's going to melt. So that's uh, wonderful. I love living in this city. Uh, number two, uh, it's one thing to, to say, yeah, I want to walk more, but I like what you said about the intentionality and reminding yourself of what it feels like after you do it. That was something Shane Baker brought to the table last week, talking about wellness and talking about mm -hmm. Sometimes even on those days when it's hard to do, you have to remember the outcomes. There's a reason why you're doing it. Number three, do you actually track the steps? Do you have a smartwatch or your phone tracking the steps for you? Yeah, and I really enjoyed that conversation with Shane Baker. I could relate to it. Yeah, it tracks it on my phone, and that is... I think I'd be a lot less motivated without that, especially when it kind of says, oh, you're walking less than you normally do or feeling that sense of accomplishment when you get that you're walking more than you normally do. So like I say, I do try to get out there just with my thoughts, but you know, sometimes if I don't want to go, I'll let myself listen to a podcast and say, you know what, I, I do like this more as a silent activity, but if this is going to get me out there, I'm going to listen yeah. to something um, like a guilty pleasure. Now I have to be very careful if I do that and uh because you know it sort of turns me into like uh not being able to see or hear situation but yeah th this uh, is this is another example of the uh, of the legally blind or blind card uh being involved here that you got to be careful if you're uh, if you're if you're plugging both ears with headphones as you're making your way around the world yeah sometimes I just do one earbud or I keep the volume kind of at a reasonable level and and you know up the alertness for my surroundings for yeah. sure over to Alex Smythe here Alex I was clanging and banging at the gym over the weekend uh, they just installed a, a barbell system at my uh, at my uh, condo gym which is fantastic I can get back to the bench pressing and the overhead barbell pressing which is just like real affirmations of masculinity when you're doing those exercises not to gender these things uh, too much and as I was doing my exercise I was thinking to myself that smartwatch that i bought in the holidays of december 2022 where is that because i should be tracking my heart rate if i'm getting uh, more serious about the clanging and banging so for me i like the weightlifting with a little bit of cardio machine mixed in what about you so i 100 percent agree i think uh, weightlifting in my mind is the the my favorite way to exercise i don't know it's the best way to exercise i i think if if I have to put my money on like what's going to give me the best results it's probably going to be more on the cardio side but i enjoy the weightlifting much more i like the 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 feeling of being big and strong lifting heavy things putting them up uh, down again and lifting them up again you know it's, it's <laughs> routine i enjoy but I, I i find i i need to really focus more on the cardio side of things so i do have 
the rowing machine at home that uh, I've started to get back into. I need to put more emphasis on going back on that every day and getting my 2K row in. Wow. It's just harder. It's just harder, Dave. I, I prefer doing like the the heavy physical stuff instead of working out the cardio, but I know I need the cardio yeah. more than I need the heavy weight. It's it's really tough in the home setup to really get that weightlifting and reach those weightlifting goals because you can buy some dumbbells and get a very effective yeah. workout in or buy some resistance bands and get some very effective workouts in. But if you really want to make progress, if you want to build something and get that pump, that's where weightlifting at home is very, very tricky. Just to literally have enough weight to give yourself an opportunity to progress. Yes, and, and I think basically you have to approach it in a different way, right? Like you don't go for the, the heavy deadlifts or things like that because, you know, getting the actual weight, as you say, is so expensive and hard to actually get access to it in the space. So you have to do combo movements in one. Instead of just doing a bicep curl, do a bicep curl, then a tricep push, and like you, you do two or three movements. So you're working out your muscle groups at the same time. It's being a harder workout with less weight yeah. or, or doing multiple repetitions between sets, things like that. So you have to approach it differently than you would at a gym that's fully stocked with all those heavy weights. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or my new condo, or my condo's new bar. Super, super exciting. Yeah. I cannot believe uh, how excited being able to bench press uh, made me when I saw that bar a few weeks ago. Okay, at Accessible Media on X, I'm really going to have to focus on getting that right. At Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. That's where you can vote on social media directly, or you can chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the show, pick up the phone and give the show a call, 1-866-509-4545. 1-866-509-4545. You see, I'm talking about picking up the show. That's some ultimate heavy lifting right there if you tried to bench press me. That's some true weightlifting. Coming up after the break, Quebec's public sector unions have reached a tentative agreement with the government. Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press gives you an update. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in streaming audio at amiplus.ca. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Quebec government and public sector workers have reached a tentative contract agreement. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. And Michelle can offer up an update. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. Michelle, this one broke in the afternoon yesterday. What's the latest? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the biggest development with this one came on December 28th. That's when the, the province really did announce that it had reached a deal with a group of unions that we're going to just call the common front. That's what they're calling themselves. It's the easiest way to deal with us. Otherwise, we're into a lot of alphabet soup. I've been joking with the Montreal reporters about trying to keep all the various unions <laughs> straight. Um, but the common front basically represents about 420,000 public sector workers. And it could be education, healthcare, um, public service. I, I, there's it's, it's a whole broad, big mm -hmm, tent. Mm -hmm. The deal announced on, the, on December 28th, um, what we heard yesterday from the Common Front is that this deal is now one that they're willing to take to the membership for a vote. So 
We weren't sure which way they were going to go on this one. They were not offering a lot of comment, but it seems that they're satisfied enough with this deal to take it to the membership. And they're going to now spend the next month or so weighing in to see if they've got a deal. So so there's quite a long timeline involved here, probably because of the number yeah, of unions and even, even the, the notion of a timeline between December the 28th and January the 7th. Yes, there's holidays in between, but the, like the timeline is a little murky here. It is a bit, but what we what we do know is that they're now going to be going on until I believe it's February nineteenth is the deadline they have to secure these these votes from the membership. So you're right that that is a while, but it's also not totally unheard of. There were some other I, I can't remember specifically, but I've definitely seen longer ratification periods for a while when we have complex deals or multiple unions involved. So I think it makes a certain amount of sense given how it's it's. It's relatively straightforward from here. Now we, mm. we know there's going to be one, one month, you know, five weeks or thereabouts. February 19th, I believe, is the date. Uh, they're going to be taking it around the province. There's a lot to unpack with the deal. It's a five-year deal um, with the, the biggest item on it being a 17.4 salary increase percentage-wise over that five-year period. Um, so there's a fair bit for everyone to weigh in on and, and, and assess, but there is now a timeline for getting it done. What about any potential job action during the course of those five weeks? Because there were some pretty significant mm. impacts during the course of those rotating strikes, especially especially in the health and education sector. Yeah, very much so. There, there have been some schools that have not been in session for, for a couple of months now because of all these various strikes, not all involving common front unions. It's worth noting that there are other unions outside the common front that are also in negotiations, and that's been part of this whole drama. But um, what, what's looking like for the next five weeks during the ratification period, um, the, every indication from the union suggests that there will be no more strike action during that time. So um, I can't guarantee unequivocally, but everyone is saying, including the unions, that further action like that seems very unlikely in the immediate term. Uh, if the deal doesn't land, though, then we're back to square one. Right. And we're very likely looking at more strikes. Michelle, let's pivot off of labor relations, although that's really been your file here for the better part of uh, oh, yeah. six months. It's, it's, Monday it's your reports. Monday morning labor update with Michelle McQuig. That's, pe that's pe people reach a lot of deals on Sundays. That's just the way that it goes, Michelle. You know, a day, oh. day of rest, except in the I labor never industry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Especially when they land at like 11.50 at night. This one did not, but yeah. This one definitely was a little bit more at a reasonable hour, thankfully. It was. Okay, Michelle, let's uh, pivot to something that I would consider to be positive news, not to throw too much of an editorial slant on this. The city of Calgary has been converting office space into residential housing, and it looks like that's starting to bear a little bit of fruit. So what's some yeah. of the context around this story out of Calgary? Sure. So I, I have to put in a plug for my colleague Amanda Stevenson, who did mm -hmm. a great story on this. It's really worth reading. And she's, if you're interested in energy sector matters, she's our oil and gas reporter, and it's always worth a read. She's Amanda's great. Anyway, um, the context here was that, you, if you recall, Calgary wound up with a lot of vacant office space. It was a combination of the pandemic, but mostly the energy sector collapsed. Remember, the oil prices tanked, energy companies were laying people off left and right. And as a result, the downtown vacancy rate for office space was up around like 30% 30, 30 or a bit more. Wow. Really, really high. Um, so the, the city decided to launch an interesting project that would offer subsidies, 75, square, uh, 75 bucks per square foot to any office building owner who was prepared to convert some of this space into residential units. They weren't sure how it was going to go. They set a funding cap of about $253 million for this project, so a significant price tag for a municipality. And lo and behold, it was a huge success. They've attracted 13 projects already. They've hit their cap, their their funding caps. They've had to pause it for a moment. There's four more projects that have also been approved and that are waiting to start. Some of these projects are well underway and are set to open soon. 
And it's been a huge success. It is now being touted as a bit of a model for other cities to, to possibly look at. Michelle, I know that some of this is in flux. There, there's some fluidity to the numbers, but how much housing are they hoping to create? Maybe even if you want to spe specify the uh, Cornerstone building, which is sort of the current sort of feature project that looks like it's going to get its doors open first. Yeah, that's a, that's going to be a building, uh, a 10-story office building, and I believe it's going to be about 112 units in said building. Uh, the goal was to convert about 6 million square feet of office space into residential wow. units through this project. And uh, as, as, as we just went through, they're, they're, they seem to be well on pace to do exactly that. Uh, hard to say until the projects are totally built to get a sense of how it's working. Um, these kinds of projects are not totally straightforward. They're, they're, Amanda gets into No, they're the difficult. Yeah, around. they're very difficult. Yeah, they are. They're, they're quite tricky. But as a lot of people have pointed out, they're still cheaper than building entirely fresh from the ground up. Even if you're into converting, you know, rooms that don't necessarily have windows or trying to deal with funkily placed elevators or, or unusual floor plan configurations or whatnot. Um, all of that is still cheap. <laughs> yeah. plumbing, pl pl plumbing is tricky because sometimes uh, there's only one or two bathrooms on an office floor. So sometimes uh, <laughs> sometimes plumbing gets a little bit wild. But Michelle, yeah. I, like th I like that you used the word sort of blueprint there or, or sort of something that can be moved forward as a template <laughs> because this is something yeah. that, that Dave Brown Consulting has been all over for the better part of four years. <laughs> that if, if, if there are going to be a situation where a city's experiencing 15, 20, 25% uh, office vacancy, and that's certainly occurring in places around southern Ontario, around Metro Vancouver, because the, the, the in Montreal, Montreal, in, the, uh, yeah. Halifax, the trend yeah, all over the all over Canada, really. The, the, the trend of in-office work certainly to a degree <clears throat> is coming back, but I don't think you're going to see the rush to commercial office space. And if everyone wants to acknowledge that there's a housing crisis going on, use existing infrastructure, especially in oftentimes uh, desirable places to go put some housing up. Yeah, that's it. I mean, office places are right downtown. So yeah, they are quite desirable. They're often really close to transit, which is very attractive for people. Um, <clears throat> and of course they have the, the the added bonus of potentially revitalizing some downtown areas that might have fallen yeah, into some yeah. neglect over time. So yeah, like it, I, I'll tell you what I'll tell the the listeners what I told you last night is I thought of you immediately when I saw this story because I know you've been touting this idea for a while, but here it is working quite well. And as you said, Dave, the vacancy rates in other cities there. Amanda mentioned several in in the story. They're not as high as the thirty percent plus that Calgary was facing, but we're still talking about north of fifteen percent and sometimes even into twenty percent in many places. So yeah, I, there there are lots of indications that this is a model that other cities might want to take a look at. And, and now Calgary's got a bit of, of data to prove how effective it can, can start out yeah. being anyway. Again, the, the buildings aren't up, people are not yet moved in. Uh, but so far, this is definitely, uh, I, th I don't think you were wrong to call it a good news story at the outset of this one. And you're right. Amanda Stevenson did a fantastic job with her article on this one. But CTV News Calgary also did a really good video story on this as well, showing some of the development. The, the, the apartments and condos look really, really nice. And there's a component cool. here where some of it is going to be affordable housing as well, sold at 20% below market rate. So it's, it's not just, oh, here's a bunch of hoity-toity condos for rich people in downtown Calgary. There is a component of affordability as well to the story. So like, like all cool. of those pieces together are what make it a good news story in my mind. Whether or not it serves as that long-term blueprint, it's as I've said before, the housing crisis is going to require spaghetti at the wall and a lot of spaghetti at yeah. the wall. 
Absolutely. But this is, is definitely one solution that seems obvious enough. Um, but it's interesting to see how little it's been taken up. Calgary's program is actually the first of its kind in North America. So mm-hmm. this is it, it still is pretty well an untried system at this stage. So it's an interesting one to take a look at. And, and so far, so good. Well, well done by the city of Calgary. Michelle, well done by you. Thank you for all the work you, you do over the weekend. Enjoy a couple of days off. Sounds great. See you Friday, Dave. That's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up next, Usable Net has released its annual report on digital accessibility lawsuits in the United States. Denis Boudreau dives into some of the data. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Usable Net has released its annual report on digital accessibility lawsuits in the United States. The Usable Net team documents lawsuits where a website, mobile app, or video content is the subject of a claim. Over 4,600 lawsuits were filed in 2023. Let's dive into the data with Denis Boudreau. Denis is the founder of Inclusive Communication. Hey, good morning, Denis. Nice to chat with you this morning. Good morning. Happy to be here. Denis, there are plenty of individual data points to pick at, but what's your reaction to the top line number? Over 4,600 lawsuits. Um, it, it's, a, it's a trend that keeps confirming itself is the first thing that comes to mind over the course of the last, uh, so, so usable net has been tracking this data until uh, since, uh, 2018 or so. And, um, or every year the numbers just keep adding. So, uh, so there was a bit of a plateau in the last two years, around 4,000, 20, 30 lawsuits or so, but from 2022 to 2023, there's an actually actually a 14.1 uh, spike or, or increase uh, to 4,600 4, uh, lawsuits this uh, last year. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it just speaks to the fact that people are are hearing more and more about what the web could be and realizing that what organizations are providing through their platforms doesn't quite meet, uh, you know, expectations and needs mm-hmm. of people with disabilities. And more people are just taking measures to make sure that the web becomes more accessible. So it's all very positive. It's all very healthy from the perspective of getting an industry, uh, you know, in on track with, with inclusion. 700 of the lawsuits were filed against companies that previously faced an Americans with Disabilities Act-related case. What does that suggest to you? Um, well, the first thing that I think it really should suggest is that organizations who get who get sued don't necessarily learn from that experience and most likely, you know, try to fix some of their challenges to get get it over with and then forget about accessibility and go back into recreating more barriers afterwards. So that's one possibility for sure. The other possibility is that, um, you know, a a particular organization could be sued because of their website not being accessible and then still be sued a couple months later because a particular application or service or product that they have also has issues or challenges. So people get like organizations get, get, you know, sued from different angles because they have more than one platform or one that one more than one product. 
but a lot of it, or, or maybe the the biggest, um, you know, the biggest lesson I think for organizations in there is that accessibility is not just something that you fix once and you forget about it. It really should be something that becomes part of your system so that you maintain and nurture it regularly, just like you, just like you would for you know, your secu security measures or your privacy policies and everything like that. These things need to keep, keep uh, being updated. And if you don't, accessibility just starts breaking down again, and then you expose yourself to more, uh, more of those claims. There was one type of company that received the most complaints, and that was e-commerce. And it was by a yep. wide margin, Denis, 82% of cases that were filed under an ADA lens were against an e-commerce company. Why? I, I think it's a sheer number game, uh, numbers game, basically. There's so much going on in terms of, of offering for, for you know, different organizations that have uh, that are offering services in in you know the industry of retail in general. So having more and more of those organizations out there means that there are more targets also uh, that are that are possible in that sense. So if you compare if you compare the uh, the eighty two percent of of um, of lawsuits coming in from the the angle of the uh, the retail industry, um, 82 percent, like you said, there's a total of about 14, 15 different industries that are in there. And the other 18 percent is distributed across everything else. So, you know, how many banks could you sue possibly or how many, you know, air carriers could you sue as opposed to retail? There's so many different stores out there. So that that explains part of it. It's just a matter of how many, uh, many, uh, you know, uh, organizations or, or businesses are out there. That's the biggest reason. What about the contrast between larger businesses and smaller businesses? Because the, the report did point out the trend was towards more small businesses encountering lawsuits. Is that also a raw numbers game? Uh, it absolutely is. Uh, the um, So again, I, I think in the United States, it's something along the lines of 99.9% .9 of businesses are under a 25 million revenue uh, mark. So of course, again, there are a lot more of those out there than there are bigger uh, players. And also, most of the, the bigger players have been sued in the past also. And, and I've heard about accessibility and have had pressure to become more accessible or inclusive. As a result of that, they've developed different types of um, you know, accessibility programs or, or have, have some kind of a system ongoing to try and, and become more inclusive as an organization, as a service provider, as you know, a, a business. And, and smaller players may not necessarily have heard of that. And most of them actually discover accessibility and, and you know, requirements around accessibility um, after receiving such a letter, such a like a complaint letter from, from, uh, from, from someone. So it's not surprising that, that you know, the vast majority of them come to, to smaller businesses. And this is, this is it's it's a trend that has been establishing itself for, for the last couple of years. I believe UsableNet started tracking that information around 2020, and it's been around 70 to 73 percent, you know, consistently across uh, the last four years. So the ratio of almost you know one, um, you know, like three quarters of them, almost three quarters, being in smaller businesses is explained by those 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 facts. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it really is a a raw numbers game.
There's also a note in the report about how unhelpful accessibility widgets and overlays are when it comes to making the digital space more accessible. Denny, you have dedicated entire segments to how much these widgets and overlays annoy you. Do you take any pleasure in seeing uh, them face criticism in this kind of report? Not pleasure, uh, for sure. I mean, there's nothing There's nothing pleasing about this in, in, in any way. Um, I mean, there is there is a need to make to make the web more inclusive and accessible and technology will definitely be the way to do it a lot more i i i you know i trust technology a lot more than i trust humans to just want to learn this and make it a, a core competency of theirs so so i don't i don't take pleasure in it for sure but it is a it is certainly a important reminder to be very careful and, and apply critical thinking to what the overlay vendors, the the the, uh, the 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 software solution vendors, how they claim about their tools, you know, fixing everything, because um, it really doesn't. And, and again, this is something that we see year after year: the number of, of organizations being sued despite having bought into one of those services uh, just keeps growing. Mm -hmm. It was something like four hundred or so in 2022 it's 700 in 2023 so it, it hasn't doubled but it really has increased quite a bit and um and and again you know it, it just speaks to the fact that if you really want to create a more inclusive experience on your website in, in your in your digital properties some work needs to be done it's not just a magic button that you push and then everything gets fixed and and if you care about you know servicing um, an increasingly large number of the population and tap into that particular market that is largely underserved, you need to actually work into, uh, you know, putting the work into it. Mm. So, I mean, what, what it really says, and maybe the cautionary tale in the, behind the whole thing is that, yes, it can help. Yes, it has some value. Yes, it will probably in the future become something that is more helpful than it is today. And, you know, we have to sort of suffer through getting there at some point. But at the same time, if you only depend on these tools to fix your accessibility problem or to make it go away, clearly that's not working so well for over 700 organizations um, in the past year. Denny, the American legal system and Canadian legal system are not the same. That's probably an understatement. The American disability legal framework is also completely different, maybe not even comparable, if you consider how long the Americans with Disabilities Act has been around and the Accessible Canada Act is still in its fledgling phase. That preamble aside, how could a report like this offer direction or perspective for the folks putting together the Accessible Canada Act or other provincial legislations? Well, you know, it's it's very obvious that the way that Americans deal with these kind of challenges is very different than what we do here in Canada. We don't have a culture of law of, of suing in the same way that the United States do. Um, so, so there's certainly like something like this could not happen here, but there is certainly a um, a movement that is coming together of people realizing that, yeah, if if I have a hard time on that website, it's probably not just because of you know my disability. It's probably because the organization is not doing what it should be doing to make sure that I'm also included. So education is slowly and but consistently growing in terms of of understanding that. 
something could might be you might be able to do something about it. So from the perspective of the Accessible Canada Act, for instance, and and from the perspective of Canadians, because um, you know the, the Accessible Canada Act (ACA), it's really about uh, you know organizations that are under uh, federal jurisdiction. So it's not all organizations out there, but the same could be said about, you know, AODA, for instance, in Ontario and, you know, affecting pretty much every business that does business in, in Ontario. Um, and then every province having its own version of that more or less uh, similar. It's, it's a re reminder to Canadians that, you know, there are options out there if you feel like you're being prejudiced against uh, due to disability. And, and while we will not, most likely not develop a culture of, of suing here as well. Being able to voice that uh, concern, being able to speak to uh, expecting more from those organizations is something that I, I, I suspect we will hear more and more over time. And if, you know, to go back to the Accessible Canada Act and your question, if um, if I was involved in that process, um, which I'm not, but if I was involved with that process at a federal level, I would want to make sure that there are very clear ways through which uh, citizens can act on this and mm. be able to say, I'm having these issues. Who can I easily reach out to? And that there's a follow-up so that the right people hear about you know my concern, my problem, my challenge in you know organization uh, XYZ so that either I can have that conversation with them if I want to do that, or at least there are ways through which there's going to be a follow-up so that, you know, some pressure is being put on them to, to do better in that sense. Denis, really appreciate your insight on this report. Thank you for bringing it to my attention. It was a really good read. Have a lovely day. Talk to you in a couple of weeks. You as well. Thank you. That's Denis Boudreau, the founder of Inclusive Communication. Let's bring in Alex Smythe for the weather story of the day. Alex, it is uh, winter time for folks on the West Coast. That's right, Dave, because out in BC, they're expecting to deal with a triple whammy of wintry weather conditions over today and tomorrow. It's gonna be a rough start to the week. So there's gonna be a mix of rain, snow, and wind that will impact the region. So places like Vancouver Island and the coastal mainland will expect to experience the mix of rain and snow. It really is dependent on your location. So snow is primarily gonna be found in places away from the shoreline and away from the water and at least 200 meters of elevation. That said, Vancouver is expected to see some flakes today and into tomorrow, but other places like Victoria and Tofino, they're gonna be expected to see cold, miserable rain instead of snow. And uh, speaking of which, Victoria and Vancouver could see upwards of 30 millimeters of precipitation, whether that takes the form of rain or snow between today and tomorrow, whereas Tofino and other parts of Western Vancouver Island, they could see upwards of 100 millimeters when it's all said and done by tomorrow. Wind is also going to be a major factor over the next couple of days. So depending on where you are located, you're gonna be experiencing really heavy uh, winds particularly in the southwest portions of Vancouver Island. So uh, there could be wind gusts up to 90 kilometers per hour or more. So that could be, you know, towards the south, uh, southwest, as I mentioned, potentially into the Victoria area. The models are still unsure exactly how strong the winds are gonna be. So keep 
kind of watching before you head out and about today and into tomorrow. And make sure you dress for the weather. It's going to be a rough start to the week. Alex, thank you for this. Uh, after the break, Amy Amanti, who's uh, in the Vancouver area, can tell you and I exactly what kind of uh, weather she's experiencing out there today. Coming up after the break, Leave the World Behind is a Netflix movie that continues to trend globally like six weeks after it came out. I think that shows you there's been some staying power. Entertainment critic Amy Amanti will give you her review. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Leave the World Behind is a Netflix movie that's been getting a whole lot of buzz. Part of that has to be the cast. Think Julia Roberts, Mahershala Ali, Ethan Hawke. You know, just a couple Academy Award winners cutting it up. The movie's about a family that rents a cottage outside New York City. Maybe cottage is an understatement. A really, really, really nice cottage outside New York City. And strange things start happening after they arrive. Here's a clip from the trailer. I went online this morning and I rented us a beautiful house out by the beach. I figured if I made the reservation and packed our bags, it would eliminate most of the reasons to say no. A family travels from their New York City apartment to a large house in the country. Oh, this is nice. They explore the house from Sam Esmail. Kids look so happy. The parents watch their kids jump in a pool. The creator of Mr. Robot. The Wi-Fi isn't working. Dad grabs a rock club and opens the door to a man and girl in evening wear. I'm so sorry to bother you that this is our house. This is your house? They all stare at each other. Based on the best-selling novel. We were driving back to the city, then something happened. You want to stay here, but we're staying here. We need to get them out of here. The man's daughter jolts awake. I need to think everything's going to be okay. A large ship approaches a beach. Everything is going to be okay, isn't it? An emergency broadcast appears on TV. We are seeing ongoing cyber attacks across the country. A glass door cracks. People cover their ears. Something is happening, and I don't trust them. Everything I know, I have told you. I don't believe you. I would do anything to protect my family. What you do is your business. Manti has thoughts on the film, and so do I, because I watched it too. Hello, Amy. Uh, Amy, sorry, we just caught it. We caught to your audio a little bit, a little bit late there, but I just want to make sure I've got you. Hello. Hello. There we go. We got Amy and Manti. Perfection. So, Amy, I simultaneously really liked this movie, but there were some things that I didn't like. Loved mm -hmm. the premise, loved the acting. There were some really great set pieces, and we can dive into some of this stuff individually, but I mm -hmm. thought the climax was kind of cruddy, and that soured yeah. the taste. Now, I don't want to spoil the climax. I just thought it was a little bit of a letdown. What did you find interesting about this movie? You know what? Dave, those hit all of the marks that I was thinking, too. Uh, there's some really, like, the premise of this, I was, I was so into. I so loved. I was so following it. I thought it was so 
unique in a lot of ways. And we've seen a lot of movies that have, um, you know, there are a lot of thrillers, whether you want to call this an apocalyptic one or whatever. I, for me, it feels like an apocalyptic type filler, th- thriller. Mm. Um, and uh, like an end of days kind of thing. And uh, as it evolves, you know, it, it's asking the the viewer, the witness of the film to kind of unravel the pieces for yourself um, in some ways, right? Until they sort of give up the climax for you. And then you're kind of like, uh, oh, uh, uh, oh, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, oh, okay. yeah. Like the, 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 the stakes they set up are so high, yeah. but the actual climax they deliver was so low. But Amy, I love yeah. what you mentioned about putting the pieces together because as yeah. a viewer, they did a great job of putting you in the house with the characters and asking yeah. yourself, what is going on and what yeah. would I do, right? There's yeah. an intentionality to the story that says, how would I behave in this yeah. scenario? And I love it when a movie does that. Yeah, and, the, and you're right. This and the stakes are totally high, and and some of the moments that they share in terms of there being a real uh, thriller element to this, like when the uh, when the the uh, father and the daughter show up, like like they've got this cheesy movie uh, music in the in the trailer here, which totally downplays the thriller aspect yeah. in my mind. Yeah. But when the father and the daughter show up at the door and they say, "This is our house," you're thinking oh my God, is this a murder mystery? Like, are they going to show up and murder this family? Mm, Like, you have no idea. mm. Is this the real people that own this house? Is this, like, who are these people? And then there's also a race element here that's happening, right? There's a racial diversity. There's a little bit of a racist undertone which plays into this. There's a whole bunch of factors at play here. And as the viewer, you're asking yourself, which one of them am I supposed to follow as the storyline um and so you're trying to untangle a bunch of these uh spider web theories in order to to try and figure out which way the story is going and that's really interesting um so you don't want to watch this when you're like you know i turn it on at 11 o'clock and you're like half asleep anyway <laughs> you really want to like be prepared to like do a little bit of work but not too much but a little bit you know yeah th- that was one of my other complaints i thought it was probably about 20 minutes too long maybe 30 minutes bit. too long because they were very deliberate the filmmakers made a very deliberate choice and did a great job of forcing you as the viewer to ask yourself questions along the way and try to entangle it. But through the actions of their characters, it deliberately slowed down the movie. I thought it probably could have paced itself out a little bit better so they could have gotten this down to a really tight 90 as opposed to two hours and 10. Yeah, I think I think I would agree with you on that. And and while I haven't read the book, what I've heard about the book is, just as a caveat, is... The book uh, goes to the uh, uh, the real extreme of what you're just talking about is really allowing the the reader of the book to go off into tangents about what the heck is going on here. Whereas this movie is something like the director has read the book and is sort of giving you his notion of what has gone on. So can you imagine reading the book with all the other possibilities that might exist compared to a movie which is like the director saying, well, these are, these are my conclusions of what I think are going on based on his uh, reading of the book. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah. reading the book might have even more tangents for you to explore in your own mind. And I think that might have been too much for me because um, this was already enough. <laughs> I'm going to stay with the praise here because, again, yeah. I've got my criticisms, but I also have a ton of mm-hmm. praise for this. I love movies 
that really play into what I would call a contemporary or modern storytelling. The film felt very modern with a lot of creativity, and I'm not going to spoil this, but I'll just say a scene that involved electric cars was so yes. brilliantly thought out, and it was probably one of the best set pieces of the movie. I absolutely 100% agree with that. And as I was listening to the audio description unfold, because that scene sneaks up on you. Oh, yeah. You don't actually know what's happening until, uh, you know, it, it sort of plays out piece by piece. And then all of a sudden it's revealed and you're like, holy doodle, I didn't even think of that, but that could happen tomorrow. Right? Like, if, right? So, because this is the world that we're in today, experiencing every day in our lives. And we don't even think about these things as being something that could happen in today's life. But should we find ourselves in the circumstances that our characters find ourselves in? Perhaps it could be very resonant to what we're experiencing in our everyday life. With technology. A, a little, yeah, some of the technology stuff is also a great thread to think about. No need for you and I to jump into that here because yeah. I think the, the movie is pretty overt in the way, <laughs> in what it has to say about our reliance on technology. But I do want to give the actors a shout out here because that was one of the things that even though I thought it was a little bit long, Mahershala Ali, Julia Roberts, Ethan Hawke, and frankly, a great supporting cast as well, were yeah. so engaged on screen with such incredible chemistry. I think especially Mahershala Ali, but Julia Roberts plays such an unlikable character, but one that you yeah. can relate to, even though she's unlikable. We are so used to seeing Julia Roberts play likable characters in a lot of roles. Girl Next Door, even though she's, you know, stunning, but the, like those kinds of characters um, that this is, a, this for me felt like a real um, out of the box thinking type of character for Julia Roberts, which I was really happy to see. Ethan Hawke, I almost didn't recognize mm -hmm. um, in his uh, characterization and his persona. Um, and like, shout out to Kevin Bacon, who has a really small sort of cameo role. But Kevin Bacon, like, can knock anything out of the box. Um, and I just I just loved seeing that cameo role from Kevin Bacon because he is your everyday sort of, um, I don't know, July 6th. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> July 6th, uh, uh, Republican. We'll just we'll leave it at that, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, so, but that was just sort of a, a fun nod to me from, from Kevin Bacon. But you're right. All of the other supporting cast did really, really well. And some of those folks I didn't even, like, really recognize from any other, pro you know, TV or movie programming that I'd really seen in a, in a big way. So I thought this could really put a, co a couple of folks on the map. Amy, before I ask you about the described video and your yep. overall recommendation, the one last piece of positive praise I want to give is the sound design. This yeah. movie sounded incredible, whether yep. it was the original score, whether it was licensed music, whether it was other sound effects. Oh, my yep. gosh. Oh, my gosh. What an incredible job by the sound designers. Yeah, I agree. And I think that that also ties in to the audio description, if you're willing to let me. Please, please. Uh, double onto that tangent. So, you know, audio description, I think, and sound design can pair, uh, can pair up really nicely together, um, whether it's intentionally thought about or not, because usually it's not, right? Usually audio description is a thing that happens at the very end. It has to usually happen at the very end because you need a final product. If scenes keep changing, then describers have to keep changing their work, right? So, um, but what ends up happening is, is, is for, um, you know, for a thriller like this to be successful with the audio description, the uh, audio describer needs to be able to write with a little bit of um, 
thrill in mind, and I'll, I'll tangent on that in a second, but your narrator also needs to read the narration as if they fit into the world of the story, right? So imagine if somebody like Yardley Smith, the voice of Lisa Simpson, was narrating a piece like this. It wouldn't fit into the mm, world, right? Mm. And so you'd be taken out of this story constantly. It just wouldn't fit. So you need to have a narrator that has the right tone and, and uses their voice in the right way to add the suspense to the movie. And that's re a really important piece because there's a lot of really suspenseful moments in this so that's a part of the th a part of the world building the other part of the world building uh that works with the sound effects is now if you think about this as a an ap apocalyptic thriller like i've been thinking about it is what is happening in the world like this scene that you we were talking about earlier with technology um uh the set pieces right so these are the where, where the sound comes into some of these really incredible scenes how is the description describing these scenes that create a world that I'm in. Because visually, the world is quite stunning. Visually, mm -hmm. um, we know where we are. We know the impact of this visual stuff that we're seeing on the characters. Now, I'm listening, and am I getting that same impact, right? Um, not to give things away again, but there's a scene uh, where um, Mahershala Ali, so George, shows up on a beach and uh and there's a disaster site on a beach and is that disaster site described to me in the right way oh interesting for me to um articulate what that what that what the impact is on the character mm, mm. and that's a really important scene for that particular husband right really important now like people are who have seen this will know what i'm talking about <laughs> yeah, yeah. People, who haven't hit, people who haven't hit play when they do hit play will go oh yes i understand why this is important yeah. to that character and that character's world and that character's arc and if the audio description lets us down there we're totally lost yeah. as part of of the world of this of this piece so the audio description does um, a half decent job of being able to to fill in the gaps of that world, which is so important in a film like this. I think we did a really nice job there talking about this movie without spoiling it. Not to pat ourselves on the back too much, but that's that was something I said to Paul Daniel, and I, yeah. I hope I hope that cascaded to you talking yeah. about this movie. I, it, it's tough because you don't want to spoil too much. You don't want to give away too much. As I mentioned off the top, I simultaneously liked it with some pretty big complaints. But overall, mm -hmm. if you have Netflix, hit play on this. That's what I would say. Like, all you're giving yeah. up is your time. Yeah. And at the end of the day, Dave, I, you know, I, I, in my own heart and mind, I've come to the conclusion that there really is no such thing as a perfect movie, right? There's no perfect play. There's no perfect book. So we can find things that we don't like really about probably any content that we consume. Um, and so I go into any of these things thinking about that kind of premise in my mind, which is Let's what are my takeaways, skip right? Right. So what are my takeaways? What will I um, take away from this film? And I took away more things than I didn't. And so yeah. for me, that's a real positive. And I can put up with the extra 20 minutes and I can put up with some of the the, the other flaws. Um, so for me, it's, it's a win. And I think that pushing play on this one is a good a good way to spend an evening. Amy, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. Thank you, Dave. That is Amy Amanti with a review of Leave the World Behind. You can find that movie on Netflix. Let's bring in Laura Bain for a little bit of entertainment news because, Laura, it's not just film reviews going on right now. The Golden Globes took place last night. Some folks took home some hardware. So what are some of the, what are some of the notable highlights? 
Yeah, for sure. Now, um, you know, one thing I was thinking, it may have been the summer of Barbenheimer, but when it comes to awards, Dave, there can only be one winner. Uh, and, you know, really it was Oppenheimer. Oppen Oppenheimer dominated the night, uh, taking home five awards, wow. uh, including for best film drama. Uh, and it was up against some big stuff there, like Killers of the Flower Moon, also winning for best uh, director, Christopher Nolan, best actor, best supporting actor, and best original score score uh, so big night for Oppenheimer wow, now wow. in the musical right and you know of course the uh, Golden Globes splits the awards into drama and musical or comedy so that's the category where we could have seen Barbie win as musical or comedy but it lost out to the film Poor Things um, oh I'm not I'm, yeah. not I'm not familiar with that film yeah, with uh, Emma Stone. I'm also, that's been in that category because I feel like there's been a lot of talk around uh, that film with Natalie Portman, but uh, the night it did win two awards. Uh, so for cinematic and box office achievement, you and I talked a bit about that category a few weeks ago yeah. because it's a new one and it's sort of speaking more to the preferences of the masses perhaps than the preferences of the critics. And this is where we saw Taylor Swift being nominated for her heiress tour. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's more of a pop culture award rather than simply an artistic merit award. And that isn't that isn't my way of saying that Barbie didn't have artistic merit. I thought it actually had mm -hmm. quite a bit of artistic merit. But it is it is a way to start shoehorning a little bit more of pop culture into the Golden Globes, which to a degree is what they've always sort of been, sort of a, a less fancy, fancy Oscars. Yeah, for, for sure. I know that was kind of what they were perhaps setting out for this uh, time around. But uh, Barbie also winning in the Best Original Song category for What I Was Made For by Billie Eilish. So, um, yeah, I kind of wonder if that win is for, I mean, obviously any win is fantastic, but being kind of shut out of those more critical categories, kind of the, the big ones. Laura, what um, about what about some of the stuff around TV? We've only got about a minute or a minute and a half left here, but what are, what are some of the TV notes out of the Golden Globes? Uh, Succession was the big uh, winner with four awards, uh, including for Best TV Drama. And uh, I know some people were watching All the Light We Cannot See from our community, which was nominated in the uh, musical or comedy, but that lost out to The Bear, which is a show I actually have not seen or really heard much about. It's it's one uh, it's one you can find on uh, Disney Plus. It's all about a, a restaurateur in Chicago, and the the overall reviews on the bear have been phenomenal, phenomenal. Well, last thing I'll mention, I know we're tight on time, but I just want to mention Lily Gladstone winning for Best Actress in the Drama category for Killers of the Flower Moon because this was an historic win. It made her the first Indigenous person to win in that category. Um, and she started her speech by speaking in Blackfeet and using the opportunity to talk about representation and encourage uh, Indigenous youth to pursue their dreams. So uh, very positive on that front. Laura, thank you for this. I'm sorry that I kind of rushed you through a little bit. As always, the host does a bad job of managing the clock, but thank you for uh, the crack report on the Golden Globes. A golden job. It's <laughs> thank you, Dave. That's fine. <laughs> That's Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report. Coming up after the break, it was a pretty fantastic sports weekend. Brock Richardson will stop by for a sports chat, react to week 18 of the NFL season, and talk a little bit about the best team in the NHL, the Winnipeg Jets. Holy smokes. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in beautiful audio at amiplus.ca. I'm Dave Brown. It's Monday, January the 8th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, researchers continue to examine the effects of long COVID. Dr. Angela Chung discusses the state of infection and explores some of the treatments available to patients. Samsung is developing a new system called the Smart Sensing System. It's designed to offer autonomous semiconductor chip production. I know that sounds all very technical, but there is a consumer impact on this. Stephen Scott will give you the scoop. And 2024 could be the start of your fitness journey. Ryan Van Pray tackles some of your big questions about personal fitness and nutrition. Let's begin the hour with Brock Richardson and a sports chat. Brock, this is a live television show, and sometimes in live TV, you've got to throw the script out the window. Three minutes ago, it has been announced by Sportsnet, or broke by Sportsnet, that Toronto Maple Leafs winger William Nylander has signed a deal with the team, an extension of eight years and $92 million. Eight-year, $92 million extension for William Nylander. Your reaction, Brock? Um... My reaction is I don't know what else you do. I th there's value in William Nylander. I struggle with um, the fact that we're putting a lot of money into you know four guys on 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 the team. But what else do you do? Are you willing to get rid of William Nylander? Probably not. Um, but I just think we look at depth of the team. It's hard to build around it when you have about seventy to eighty percent of your cap taken up. But I'm okay with it. I just need to see what Brendan Shanahan and company do with what's left of the cap moving forward. Yeah, the salary cap league. It's tough to pay everybody. That's what they're going to do. And they are desperately hoping that when the John Tavares contract expires at the end of next season, that that $11 million can be allocated elsewhere for a depth. So the wheels of drama never stop turning for the Toronto Leafs. And it's kind of scary, Dave, because like they're going, and this was rumored uh, you know, for the last little while that this was going to be a thing when they're kind of going on this whole basis that the cap will be going up, which means that there'll be more money to spend, but they don't know how much more money they'll be to spend. So it's a, it's a risk, I guess, you're willing to take because you're not willing to lose the guy, William Nylander. And I know I've been hard on William Nylander, and I still don't know if I'm excited by it, but I don't know whether I'd be excited if we lost him. So we're here now, and he's going to be a Toronto Maple Leaf. So let's see what happens. Brock, yesterday was a very exciting week 18 in the National Football League. The uh, playoff picture is now set. I suppose the crescendo of the day was your Buffalo Bills uh, clinching the AFC East with a win over my Miami Dolphins. I'll tell you where my head's at, Brock. I really did not mind losing that game last night because I did not want to play the Buffalo Bills in the first round of the playoffs. I would much rather go on the road to Kansas City. So I'm doing okay as a Dolphins fan this morning. How are you feeling as a Bills Bills fan. I'm doing okay because I'm like you. I did not want to repeat against the Miami Dolphins. When you see a team two weeks in a row, there can be adjustments made, and I didn't want to run that risk. So I am also okay with that. I would love it if Josh Allen would stop turning over the football. Uh, this has been a story of the season. Um, you know, here we are. I posted on social media last night when the, the Virginia Championships and this 
and said, hey, it's not where you start, it's where you finish. But when you still see old habits of turning the ball over, it's kind of like, what are we really? But here we are in the playoffs, new season. I'm very satisfied that they won the division. And you get a really nice matchup against Pittsburgh next week, who is very, very beat up after a Saturday night game against the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, injuries to their star pass rusher, TJ Watt. They also played that game in a monsoon. I wouldn't be surprised if some guys <laughs> develop strep throat or pneumonia this week uh, who were participated in that game. So, uh, yeah, the Bills are uh, sitting pretty with the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers coming for a visit uh, this weekend. Brock, it's not a Miami Dolphins show. I promise I'm not going to drag you into a bunch of Miami Dolphins talk just because they're my favorite football team. But did you see this controversy brambling up in the United States? This will not affect Canadian viewers, but the Saturday night game, the playoff game between Kansas City Chiefs and Miami Dolphins is not going to be available on television in the United States. It's going to be online only. Could you imagine if a Stanley Cup final game in Canada in the hockey world was only available online? There would be protests. Yeah, and there's probably going to be a lot of things happening because uh, the broadcast was saying, oh, just do yourself a favor and go get Peacock and you'll be fine. Mm, it's not just that easy for people. People love their cable. And to do this in a playoff game, I understand why. I understand the fact that we're moving towards streaming. But to do this now is kind of like, oh, boy. And uh, it's going to be a problem. But, yeah, if I was if I was in the States, I would be very upset. Because let's be fair, Dave. Kansas City and Miami are two very interesting teams and people are going to want to watch this and they're not going to want to watch it online. They're going to yeah. want to just turn their TV on and say, here it is. And, uh, there we go. But well, yeah, well, Kansas, be... well, Kansas City is interesting. I don't know about Miami, but uh, the Swifties, the Swifties and the Kelseys are going to want to tune into that game on Saturday night. And maybe that's what NBC Universal is banking on. Maybe they're banking on the idea that Swifties are going to open up their wallet to go watch Travis Kelsey play hockey. I don't know. That, yeah. that, that, that's that's a, that's a weird one for me. I'll, I'll, I'll just tell you this, Brock. My parents arrived safe and sound in Arizona. That's where they spend the winter. I am already dreading the phone call that my father is going to make to me on Saturday afternoon. Dave, how do I get Peacock? How does Peacock work? Is that Bluetooth? <laughs> so yeah, I'm already, I'm already dreading, I'm already dreading that one a little bit. Okay, let's go over to the world of uh, basketball. Uh, Golden State Warriors forward Draymond Green reinstated in the league after a 13-game suspension uh, for some uh, various violent acts that took court uh, took place on the basketball court. Brock, your reaction to Draymond Green being reinstated? Let's be very clear. He was reinstated and did not play last night against the Toronto Raptors. He will play later this week. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know whether... He should be reinstated right now. I don't know what you could, you know, gain from him being gone for less than a month. I'm sure the NBA has seen something that they're satisfied with. I just don't know what that line is that you can say, okay, you know, we wanted you to go to get some help. We wanted you to go do this. And I don't know what you're quantifying to say this is what it's going to be. What we heard a couple of weeks ago was this is going to be longer than – expected and then all of a sudden now he's been reinstated um he the game is is probably better with him in if he plays as his as his talent suggests and not the antics that he's gotten up to but i just don't know if we've seen enough or can see enough in this short time for him to be better uh, as a person so 
that's kind of where I'm stuck with that, this whole that, but situation. Ultimately, ultimately, that's not for us to know. That's for him to know. And I think that was the notion of this indefinite suspension. That's why it was left open-ended. It was sort of up to him to self-report when he was ready to come back. And that said, you know, what he did on the court was pretty gross. The, it started with a choking incident. He choked a player from behind, and the next incident was throwing uh, elbows at people. But none of these things are, like, crimes, what he did on the court. So I think 13 games, is if, if he's willing to self-report that he's to the place that he wants to be, then who are you or I to decide whether or not it's appropriate? That was the whole point of the nature of the yeah. suspension. It was open-ended. So uh, let, let's, I don't mean to use the cliche of let's see, but I mean, it's not for you or me to decide what's reasonable. It was probably unreasonable they didn't put a game total on it on the first place, right? So like that- Well, so that's you, what I wondered too. You were always gonna put yourself in this situation where there was going to be questioning and second guessing. Okay, Brock, let's end on a positive note here. As of this morning, 10.14 a.m. Eastern time on January the 8th, the Winnipeg Jets have the best record in the NHL, a winning streak that has been piling up in the new year. My gosh, Brock, I'm just so impressed by the Winnipeg Jets. Oh, man, I'm so impressed. I, I would have said that they were a mediocre team at best, you know, starting the season, and here they are, and they're leading the NHL. It's not just the Western Conference. It's they're leading the NHL, and that's that's impressive. And so when you band together and you do this as a group, it doesn't matter the talent level you have. It just when you band together and you do it as a team, uh, this is good. And I just want to also throw out there, Dave, that uh, the Vancouver Canucks are only like three points behind them in the West. Uh, so they're also doing the right thing. But uh, lots of love for Canada and hockey so yeah good stuff going yeah. on well well done well done by uh, their by the team well done by their goaltender Connor Hellebuck who just signed that extension at the start of the season and is yielding really positive results they're also doing it without uh, Kyle Connor one of their top goal scorers he uh, went out with a knee injury at the uh, the beginning of December and they continue to produce offensively a lot of that led by Nikolai Ellers who's really stepped up in his absence so yeah huge huge flowers to the Winnipeg Jets this morning that's just a little bit of positivity to wrap up this conversation Brock have a nice day you as well that is Brock Richardson he's at the AMI sports desk notice he did not ask me about my beloved Michigan Wolverines who are playing in the American College Football National Championship tonight against the Washington Huskies that is why I will not be here Tomorrow, Alex Smythe will fill in for me. Coming up next, Samsung is developing a new system called the Smart Sensing System. It has to do with production of semiconductor chips for technology. Stephen Scott will give you some more insight. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. You can tell that everyone is back from the holiday break in earnest. It's nice on a live television show when you can react to breaking news. Brock Richardson just had that opportunity in the sports chat, the Toronto Maple Leafs signing William Nylander to an eight-year, $92 million deal. Well, Stephen Scott of Double Tap on AMI-audio has some breaking news from Apple saying good morning to Stephen. Stephen, I think there's an opportunity for William Nealander to spend some of that money on some new Apple gear if he wants to. 
Absolutely. Good morning, Dave. Uh, Happy New Year to you. And yes, we are starting with breaking news uh, that Apple's Vision Pro product, that is the uh, headset that is uh, due to launch from Apple. We all knew it was coming uh, the early part of this year. We got the official announcement this morning that it will be uh, starting shipping on February 2nd. Pre-orders begin January 19th. This will be, unfortunately, in the US only. Boo! Boo! but I will say this, uh, before you get too excited, you might want to know the price of this. Uh, $34.99, and I don't mean 3 4 uh, and then the <laughs> comma. I think the comma is, is important in this to put before the 4, so $3,499 US, a, a heck of a lot of money. Um, but this is a headset with quite a difference, because this is moving into this new world of what Apple calls spatial computing, a phrase you're going to hear a lot about in uh, 2024. And ultimately, this is a product which is going to change the the way we use our computers because this puts our computer onto our heads although you'll still need a macbook you'll still need an iphone they're not you know <laughs> they're not daft over there at apple you know they they know how to get you to spend your money but uh, this Steven, is a new product at, is coming at, at the very least they're going to make you buy a charger at the very least they're going to make you buy a special Absolutely. charger Special cables, all that stuff, it's going to be required. Uh, I will also mention, and this is an interesting one for us, especially in the low vision world, because I know this is something that for me personally, I don't think I'm going to get much out of as a product. It's the one Apple product I've said I probably won't buy uh, because it's just too visual at at the moment. Uh, There's not enough in this for me. Yes, accessibility is going to be at the core of this. They've said that already. But in terms of what actual features exist, I don't want to spend my time with voiceover on the Apple Vision Pro headset just go arrowing up and down menus uh, and say, oh look, the settings again, that was really cool, let's do it again oh look, you know, look, look at all the accessibility features, but there's no apps in there that I can actually use but for people who are low vision you might want to know that there are options for prescription glasses the, the pricing has come out for them today as well uh, the uh, basic reading uh, lenses will cost $99, while prescription lenses will start at $149 that coming as optical inserts from Zeiss. Um, This is the interesting bit. It says uh, that uh, this will be available online only, which is fair enough. A valid prescription is required. Not all prescriptions are supported. Right, right. I've seen this story before. And when that what that can mean is there are certain types of eye conditions that may not be able to be supported by the the lens capability inside this device. So this is going to be a product that is going to be good for a lot of people. I don't know how many low vision people are going to love it, and I don't know how many blind people are going to love it. We shall see. Yes, Stephen, I think that's probably the big distinction between mixed reality headsets or these very particular headsets, whether it's the Apple uh, Vision Pro, whether it's the uh, the MetaQuest that Facebook's been uh, been developing versus some of the stuff that you've been on, which is the smart glasses, right? There's a distinction to be drawn here between what could be sort of a lower impact assistive device rather than something that is a gargantuan headset that is maybe not being designed for operation out in the real world. Yeah, and this is definitely not for the outside world, right? I mean, the, the, the design of this is very much like you're wearing a gigantic pair of ski goggles. It's kind of reminiscent of a lot of the other virtual reality headsets, although Apple are at pains to say 
that they're not developing virtual reality here. They want to create this spatial computing world where you can live within the world you're in, so you can see the world around you. And, and on top of that, you can then overlay this virtual world on top. And that could be, for example, a gigantic screen. You could have a 200-inch TV, you know, and watch Netflix on it. Or now with Dave Brown. <laughs> you should, um, yeah, absolutely. You should. Um, but, you know, th this is the kind of functionality. And I think that the potential here is huge for blind and low vision people. I will say that at the day one, I don't know because it's very early and there has been lots of conversation going on in the background about how many developers have been actively building for this platform. And of course, the number of those that are accessibility focused will probably be quite limited as well. So I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens here. I think this is the kind of product that in a year's time, it might be worth having a serious conversation about because at that point, it might be the case that there's apps worth our time. But I will say that I think a lot of us are holding out for version 2 or version 3, which might be smaller, slimmer, and be able to be used outdoors. Yes, yeah, Stephen, that might be a, 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 a microcosm of the greater disability experience within technology that oftentimes there's, I'm going to wait three or four days after a software update before I allow yes. my phone to be updated, and maybe I'm not going to be the earliest adopter on a new piece of technology because perhaps they have not figured out all the disability angles yet. Like you say, a ton of potential here. I, I, I'd say especially for someone like me who's legally blind, a lot of this headset technology does offer incredible potential, but until you can make a true use case for me, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna shell out the dough. No, and I could. So you, I'm thinking about with all of this. I'm thinking you could potentially benefit here, but again, to drop that kind of money. You need to be really sure what you're yeah. getting for that. So I think there's a lot of sales to be done here for, on the part of Apple, on the part of developers. You know, Apple will say, well, we build the hardware, the developers build the pro really build the products people buy. You know, what would an iPhone be without all the apps that are on it, right? It would yes. just be a phone with a messaging system on it, which, you know, doesn't work with Android. Let's not go there. Um, but, you know, I just, <laughs> I just think that when it comes to it, this is a product that's kind of waiting for a really great app to drop. I mean, you know, for in the blind world, it's Be My Eyes, it's Ira, it's those kind of applications that are really great applications. You know, will they be able to utilize the cameras built inside this device? Will we be able to enjoy the spatial audio component amongst great spatial video? Could we, for example, have a situation where you'd be able to zoom? So let's say you wanted to watch your television your 200-inch Netflix TV and be able to zoom into components of that screen so that you can see it more clearly. You know, even overlaying different lighting schemes or, you know, dark mode for your living room in a, on a sunny day. You know, these are the kind of things that I can really see being beneficial. So like I say, the potential is there. Uh, and I think a lot of that will be realized. But it ain't going to be on day one. It ain't going to be on February yeah, 2nd. Yeah, exactly. Hey, Stephen, let's uh, take a little bit of time here to talk about Samsung because they're up to mm. something interesting themselves here. They're trying to take a little bit more control of the production of their semiconductors, which ultimately means more control over the production of their chips for various pieces of technology. They're calling it the smart sensing system. Stephen, I think there's a bit of context needed here, at least the way that I look at the story. How much of this is about the semiconductor chip shortage that occurred during the pandemic? It's all about that. And it's not only that, it's also about 
companies racing to be number one in this market. This is a massive field uh, where there is a lot of money to be made by companies who are working hard in this space to develop these semiconductors. Now, most of us probably don't really understand how this technology works, and I could go into all the boring detail. Even I don't understand most of it. At the end of the, the, the day, what we're talking about here are the brains, the processors, the chips that go into our smartphones, our graphics cards, all of those things that power our technology. Now, in order for AI to be as popular and as capable as it is, we need more of these chips because you'll hear a lot of people talk about graphics chips from companies like NVIDIA who are creating these computer chips to develop graphical uh, graphic cards that can then run the AI software, that can be the brain behind artificial intelligence. That's essentially how it all works. Now, you therefore need a lot of these chips to happen and be available, and there is a shortage, and they just get bought up and bought up. And I mean, Microsoft and OpenAI are working together on this at the minute, and I think Microsoft are buying pretty much anything they can get hold of. Um, and you know, even a company like that just cannot buy enough uh, and of course, this is just going to get worse and worse because the more and more of us who use artificial intelligence as more as it becomes part of our everyday experience, part of our everyday lives, this is something which is going to be required. What you're going to see a lot of in 2024 is technology built into computers. We're hearing about AI-powered laptops coming at CES this year, uh, and you know what that means is that you know the computing hardware that we own will do a lot of that brain work without having to go off to server farms outside to do it. But in order, again, to do that, you have to have the chips, you have to have the capability. And what this this is all about is getting the production up. So get the robots to do it, because they can work day and night and not complain and take tea breaks, and <laughs> gets the job done. You know, there, there's some irony here, eh, Stephen, this notion of we need more AI to produce more chips to give us more AI. We need we need exactly we need the chips to create the robots that can help create more robots. That's what we're building. We're building robots to build more robots. <laughs> but 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 again, I do think the ultimate the ultimate goal here, consumer wise, is to mean less shortages of product for consumers. Because again, people might think of this as oh, laptops, phones. This was everything. Why were cars so expensive during the pandemic? Because they could not get enough chips to continue car manufacturing, and especially with the surge towards electric vehicles, there's going to be a whole bunch of cars needed to be made here in the next decade. So again, it's a bit chicken and eggy, but it's all sort of part of the overall process. Yeah, and it's also important to say as well that it's about distribution of all of this, because once you've built these chips, you've got to get them to places. And if you can start creating a system that can essentially take that factory and put it somewhere nearby or put it in a different location that allows you to distribute more evenly, and again, not have to deal with all of the challenges of bringing in lots of staff. I mean, it's terrible. I feel like we're, we're talking ourselves out of jobs these days. You know, it's, it's like we yeah. can see the potential of these robots that can do it so quickly. And uh, within, it's just like, give up, just forget it. Just let, let the robots do it and it'll happen and it'll all be fine. But it will make a big difference. And like you say, this will have a big impact in the future. I mean, of AI, of course, but on top of that, all of the other devices that we use every day, we all want new smartphones, we all want new TVs, new cars. In order to achieve that, we need these chips. And yeah. Samsung are really pushing to get to that number one spot. Currently number three in the world uh, in terms of semiconductor manufacturing. They really want to get to that top number one spot because it's a very lucrative place to be. Mm -hmm. Hey, Stephen, thank you for this. Enjoy all the uh, coverage out of the Consumer Electronics Show this week. Talk to you a little bit later.
Thanks, Steve. Take care. That is Stephen Scott. He's one of the hosts of Double Tap. You can find that show weekdays at noon on AMI-audio coming up after the break. Researchers are continuing to look at the impact of long COVID on people experiencing infection. Dr. Angela Chung will discuss the state of infection and explore some of the treatment options available. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Millions of Canadians have been infected with COVID-19 over the last four years. COVID impacted them in a number of ways. Some people continue to experience effects of the disease long after contraction. Researchers are trying to get a better understanding of long COVID. Dr. Angela Chung is one of those researchers. Dr. Chung is part of the University Health Network in Toronto. Dr. Chung, thank you so much for making time to be part of the show today. I'm grateful. Thank you. Thanks you for having me. So what are some of the characteristics or symptoms that people with long COVID are experiencing? Um, the most common one is fatigue. Uh, some patients will feel short of breath when they walk, um, and um, some have a fast heart rate. Um, people have trouble with joint pains and muscle aches, uh, also brain fog um, and uh, difficulty sleeping. There are so many symptoms. There are about 200 symptoms uh, that can happen with long COVID. What about some of the demographics? Are there people who are particularly susceptible to contracting a long COVID infection? Women are more susceptible than men. And, um, you know, the, between the ages of around sort of uh, 30 to uh, 60, that's probably the highest uh, rate um, for this. One of the interesting developments in the acute version of COVID-19 is there's been some development on treatment options. I know for vulnerable people, uh, products like Paxlovid are being uh, prescribed to prevent more acute or serious infection. What about the treatments available for COVID-19? What's out there for patients experiencing an infection? Um, so um, we do have some studies showing that if you took Paxlovid, um, the antiviral medication, when you have the acute infection, there is a smaller chance of getting long COVID. Um, we also know that there's another medication, which is a diabetes medication, that also reduces the risk of long COVID as well, if you take it initially with the acute infection. What's the timeline? I, I know that every individual is different, but what are some of the timelines around what constitutes long COVID rather than, say, lingering symptoms for someone who may have had the infection a couple of weeks ago? So um, there are some differences between countries in terms of how you define long COVID. In the U.S., uh, the CDC defines it as um, anything that's more than a month uh, or four weeks. 
And the WHO actually defines it as anything greater than 12 weeks or about three months. And so Canadians are a little bit more conservative because sometimes um, if you get COVID and you're very sick and you got went to the ICU, it, you may not even be out of the hospital by four weeks. And so it's not that surprising uh, to have symptoms um, when you're still sick. So we have been using the 12-week definition in Canada. Dr. Chung, one of the, the elements of the pandemic that's been interesting to me is the research and how things are evolving in real time, trying to uh, relate to real-time data as it comes in while still utilizing the scientific method. What has that research process been like for you and your colleagues as the pandemic has evolved and there have been more variants and sub-variants that may display or manifest symptoms in different ways? Um, so during the pandemic, there's lots of collaboration and funding um, uh, to look at long COVID and COVID itself and how that affects Canadians. And I would say over the last two or three years, um, there's great collaboration between the government and uh, scientific institutions um, and universities uh, to try to, um, you know, be up to date with what's going on. And there's like, uh, even though papers may not be published, but there's a sharing of information. Um, but now that the pandemic is over, that WHO declared it sort of is no longer a pandemic, it's more endemic, um, then uh, there's less funding and um, uh, there's less of a connection um, to discuss some of these things um, across the country. What have you found most interesting during the course of your research in the last four years? Um, there's a lot of great science, um, and I think that great science will help other areas as well. So, you know, it's one of these viruses that is new, but we already understood that um, it enters the cells through something called the ACE2 receptor. And because the ACE2 receptor is in many different cells in our bodies, um, it can attack different systems, not just your lungs um, or your respiratory system. And because it can attack different systems, that's how you get so many symptoms and how so many systems are affected. Ultimately, when you and I talk about COVID-19 and, and long COVID, there are human aspects to this. There are big human consequences. A few of my friends uh, dealt with it quite quite badly. I mean, they, they had um, they, they were they were well young people. I, I'm 40 years old. We're not that young, but but we you know they, they, these were people who were relatively healthy, relatively young, who experienced long COVID for six, seven, eight, nine, ten months, and it had a tremendous impact on their life. What's the message you have for people who are experiencing long COVID? as they move forward? Um, I, I would have two messages. One is that COVID is still here. Um, it's the largest spike that we've had uh, since 2022. And so um, people should still take precautions like masking in um, public indoor um, crowded areas and make sure you have your vaccinations are up to date. Uh, make sure air ventilation is good and take precautions in terms of if you're not feeling too well, then don't go out for dinner with friends um, so that you don't pass it on to others. Uh, so prevention is key um, to if you don't get COVID, you won't get long COVID. 
Mm. Um, so that's one message. The second message is around really um, there's lots of science going on. And so uh, I'm very optimistic that we will find a cure for long COVID in the near future. Dr. Chung, thank you so much for taking some time today. Thank you to you and your colleagues for all the work you do, all the research you're doing. It's really interesting stuff. And let's catch up again uh, down the road. Sounds good. Okay. Great seeing, talking to you. That's Dr. Angela Chung. Dr. Chung is a researcher at the University Health Network in Toronto. No Ramya Amuthan on the show today because there's some uh, maintenance going on at Ramya's building. She did send over an email about what's coming up on Kelly and Ramya at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI. Danielle McLaughlin will stop by for a Know Your Rights segment. Danielle will break down non-disclosure agreements and their purposes. Michael Babcock describes the Todoist app. <laughs> oh, no, the Todoist app. I'm assuming that's Todoist, not Todoist. And plus, you'll get a chance to meet uh, some entrepreneurs featured on the latest season of AMI's Mind Your Own Business, of course. So that's a show hosted by Kevin Shaw, friend of the program. You can find uh, episodes on demand at amiplus.ca. And you can find Kelly and Ramya at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv or on demand on your favorite podcasting platform. Coming up next, 2024 is the start of a new fitness journey or maybe it's continuity ryan van prate tackles some of your big questions about personal fitness and nutrition it was an ask me anything so looking forward to picking ryan's brain this is now with dave brown on ami tv Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. New Year's resolutions and fitness goals, they're in full swing. Although I'll tell you this, went to the gym both days this weekend. Nobody in the gym. Private opportunity for me to clang and bang by myself. And it wasn't even like my four in the morning workouts. It was like 11 a.m. on a Saturday. Come on, folks. Stick your game up. As your fitness journey begins, you may have some questions about where and how to start. Ryan Van Prate is an inclusive sport advocate, and he's here to answer your burning questions. Hey, good morning, Ryan. Morning, Dave. How's it going? Ryan, I am fantastic. It probably has something to do with all the protein that I ate this weekend and all the weights that I was <laughs> lifting. But, exactly. per, but Pearly Pigtails wrote in a question here on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. How careful do you need to be with protein supplements? The protein I was yeah. taking this weekend was in the form of pork chops. A little bit different than some of those supplements you buy from uh, fitness stores. Yeah, well, I'm going to give the answer that maybe is not the most glamorous answer, but it's kind of the responsible answer. And I'm just like when I talk about fitness, uh, nutrition is the same way where it's what I call the straight down the middle approach. So we've all heard of the recommended fitness uh, routine and, and we've all heard of the recommended daily allowances for your, uh, for your, your nutrients and your body operates on macronutrients, carbohydrates, fat, and protein. And so you want to examine, you know, what is your daily intake? Are you meeting those daily requirements? And then you tweak from there. So for instance, you know, if you're looking to build muscle as a bodybuilder, perhaps maybe more protein is required. If you're like myself and an endurance athlete, 
protein is still valuable, but maybe not quite to that extent. And so it is very much a one size fits all. Um, my recommendation is obviously assess to make sure you're getting that recommended daily allowance, then look at what your actual goal is, and then definitely uh, consult with your doctor who will probably put you in touch with a registered dietitian. Yeah, um, That is the best thing to do because just like a personal trainer comes up with a fitness plan, a dietitian is going to come up with a nutrition plan to suit your goals. Ryan, that, that's a really excellent diplomatic answer. I appreciate the way you put that though, but, but I'm going to sort of pin you down with maybe a bit of sure. a broader question here yeah. because certainly in fitness culture, there's a lot of noise that people put forward about try this supplement do that supplement, get the super jacked crazy protein powder. This one's 87 grams per scoop. What are your thoughts on some of the culture around supplements and vitamins in general? So there's a truth to everything, right? And I think you just don't want to jump on the pendulum when it has swung so far the other way. I think, um, you know, there's a whole movement now with uh, greens. I won't name the, the particular companies because there's a lot of different companies, but there's a lot of um, greens supplements that you can use in your shakes to basically make up for your vitamins and nutrients. There's a truth to that. But then again, it really comes down to, you know, you can't replace poor nutrition with a supplement right, right. A, supplement, <laughs> a supplement a supplement is just that right it, it's to, it's to add on where you're missing um but honestly um sometimes as they say vitamins and supplements can just make really expensive urine um, <laughs> to be honest right it, if if you can find those natural through your pork chops those natural vitamins and minerals and macronutrients it's going to be a cheaper way and, and honestly a better way um but then again if you have a specific goal if you're lacking in specific areas supplements can be valuable um you know i do think there is some truth to it there's some value but it, it it's just being very careful and, and doing your research yeah. um, not not necessarily listening to the instagram junkies um. <laughs> well Ryan, like you said there's got to be some purpose here right so I'll, I'll give you a tangible example here because i really want to try and increase my protein intake in the mornings but i tend to prefer eating yogurt and fruit when I get up. I've been looking for that little way of putting something something else into that yogurt, and I just bought some pretty affordable protein powder with decent reviews, uh, decent like scientific backing. It was like, it's, it's gonna work out to like 25 cents a scoop or something like this. So this thing's gonna last me for months and months, and it's, and it's not going to be terribly expensive. And maybe it's the same thing with the multivitamin world as well. Like you said, you can't necessarily uh, uh, fix a bad diet by simply taking multivitamins, but they can help. But sometimes there's this balance, right, between simply saying, oh, don't take something or do take something. Sometimes price matters. And that's where Bruce put in a question here about the notion of expensive energy supplements or expensive yeah. multivitamins or expensive proteins. For, for just a casual weekend warrior like myself, looking at stuff that's probably low cost is the better, is the better alternative. But for someone like you who's going to run a triathlon, on, maybe some of that expensive stuff might be worth it. Yeah, I was talking with, I think it's your producer, we, we're talking about running and, and, and in the world of endurance, there's gels, right? It's just really expensive sugar, basically, but, but it's packaged in a convenient form. And so honestly, if you can, if you can stomach, let's say, a handful of cookies on a long run, that's gonna be way cheaper than buying these $3 individual gel packets. And so Ultimately, real foods, real foods, whole foods are going to be uh, more natural to your body, are going to be uh, cheaper as well. But if you're a sensitive stomach like me, you kind of have to go with sometimes the, the more um, packaged and, and processed stuff. And, 
and I think again, it starts right down the middle. Try the try the everyday um, sources. If you need sugar, if you need protein, try the natural stuff. And then if it doesn't work or it's not convenient for your needs, then yeah, there's no harm in in dabbling in in the supplement world. But just be mindful that it is not a fix-all and it could be more expensive, but there definitely is value. I mean, I definitely use um, supplemented uh, carbohydrate <laughs> for, for my endurance world. So, you know, Ryan, everyone's on their fitness journey at a different stage. And there are some folks who are just getting started. Maybe they're not ready to plop down the money for a gym membership just yet. And they want to do a little bit of stuff around the house. Exercise gear can be really expensive. And all of a sudden you've bought a whole bunch of stuff that piles up and takes up a lot of space. What's one or two pieces of equipment that you recommend somebody invest in when they're getting started? Sure. I think no matter what you're doing, as long as, it, well, I mean, maybe not for yoga, but uh, for pretty much everything else, a good pair of shoes. A good pair of shoes is super important as well as, you know, dedicated athletic wear. Going back to my rule of no cotton, uh, that's not really breathable <laughs> or comfortable and a good pair of socks. Then if you're just looking for general um, getting into some basic strength training, maybe like a TheraBand, something as simple as a stretchy cord. I mean, really cheap, really easy to determine, um, hey, can you... If you can do a TheraBand routine week week after week, then maybe you know you're committed and you can up your game and buy some some dumbbells. What about something like um, the the balance balls or yoga mats in terms of low cost, good places to get started? Totally, a yoga mat's probably more practical. I have a, a balance ball here as well, and it's more. It was the the craze back. Uh, I remember years ago. I remember. Yeah, back, yeah, and they're useful. Again, very useful, but maybe. Um, I would say a good yoga mat's gonna be way more versatile for you as well. Um, definitely more comfortable than laying on a hardwood floor. Uh, oh, definitely better than laying on a hardwood floor. Yeah. That's uh, that's one. It's also like, there's also something about that feeling of the getting down and getting back up. I know that sounds yes. really basic, but but that ends up becoming part of the workout. That That, that is, there's, um, uh, for the bodybuilders, the CrossFitters, I think it's a thing called a Turkish get up. And it's actually a, it's actually a move you do with a dumbbell in your hand. And I mean, you think of it as functional functional fitness. If you are old like me and you fall down and you want to get back up, like as you grunt and groan, the more fit you are, the less you're going to grunt and groan because <laughs> your your strength you have sorry you've got strength you've got mobility. Um, so yeah, don't don't negate the basic things, right? Just yeah. um, the now there's a craze on Instagram for calisthenics. You know the old school calisthenics. Again, what's old is new again, and there's there's it's a craze, but there's some truth to it, right? Basic body weight exercises yeah. can be super valuable. Uh, low cost, super valuable. And and especially one of the things that I think as people continue along their journey, getting a little bit of variety in your routine can be a very, very good thing because sometimes you might fall into that trap of a plateau where you just do the same thing and you do it really well and it feels really good, but maybe you just want to try to trick a different muscle into activating or lighting up. Yeah, that's a that's a one of the main principles of fitness. One is specificity. Can't say the word. Let's say you want to run a marathon, but alternatively, the other principle, which seems contradictory, is variability. And even if you are a powerlifter, still good to occasionally put in some cardio. If you're an endurance person like me, still very good to do some mobility and some strength training. Variability. You know what is the saying? Uh, something spices the something of life a variety, a variety, a variety is the spice of life there you go 
<laughs> We're having a little pronunciation trouble and a little bit of a turn of phrase trouble this morning. I, uh, man, oh, I, man. Yeah. I empathize with you deeply. Uh, the first segment yes. of the show was me tumbling all over my words. So, you know, it's Monday for everybody out there. Yeah. Hey, uh, Ryan, Andrika's got a question here that's that's probably one of these fitness cliche questions. I'm going to mm -hmm. phrase it the way she phrased it, but I'm going to phrase it in a different way. What balance can somebody strike between exercise and eating well? In other words, can you outrun a bad diet? I love that question because I think, again, it's my boring answer of you just got to start straight down the middle. And if you're just looking for general maintenance, then you need that recommended daily allowance of your macronutrients and your vitamins, plus your 150 minutes a day, or minutes a week, sorry, not a day, 150 minutes a week, which is essentially two and a half hours of exercise. That's kind of your recommended then based upon your goals, you tweak from there. So if, if you're looking to run a marathon, that 150 minutes isn't going to do it for you. But if you're kind of happy in your groove and you're not really into athletics, you still need to do that basic maintenance. That's great. And so there's a nice balance between eating and exercise. Um, but then depending on your personal goals, uh, where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are, both with nutrition and exercise, then you start tweaking. And that's where you bring in healthcare professionals like dietitians or personal trainers or coaches and, and get that individualized plan based upon what you need. Ryan, I think that's also a great spot to sort of end for a concluding thought here with about 90 seconds left on the clock, especially when it comes to diet and exercise. People need to be forgiving of themselves. You cannot beat yourself up because you had a bad day or a bad week or a bad month. I had to learn this. I mean, 20 years ago when I got into my sport, I was so guilt is the thing, right? We always so, feel so guilty. Either I didn't do enough or I did it the wrong way, or I'm not doing it the way that the internet tells me you have to find ultimately what gets you out the door, right? What gets you motivated. And there is no right answer. I think you have to find um, that spark um, that relates to, to your goal. And yeah, just, just be kind to yourself because um, some is better than none, right? Just get up and do something is better than sitting on the couch and, and contemplating. You know? no, no. Well, that's like my theory of some donuts is better than no donuts as well. Everything in moderation. Everything, Everything in, moderation. in moderation. No, but but, I, but again, I think knowing that we're a little tight on the clock here, Ryan, I think I think it's really important that people don't demonize the things that they like, right? There's some people yeah. on, on like the fitness journey who are like peanut butter, don't eat peanut butter, and it's like no, peanut butter's fine for you. Yes, again, don't jump on the pendulum when it's on one way or the other. You know, find that middle ground, find what works for you. Um, all these fitness crazes, you know, can get your head spinning, but just pick what works best for you and what what's going to get you out the door. Hey, Ryan, you're the best. Always appreciate your insight on these matters. I'll keep you posted on my bench press numbers. Love it. Love the questions, everybody. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, huge shout out to everybody who got involved on social media at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, at Accessible Media on X. And don't forget, you can always chime in with any questions you have for the show. Feedback at AMI.ca is the email address. Feedback at AMI.ca or pick up the phone and give the show a ring. 1-866-509-4545. 1-866-509-4545. That's it for the show today. Don't worry, things kick off again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Alex Smythe will fill in for me as I'm watching football tonight. Go Wolverines! Go Blue! Until until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun.
Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.